You got to keep the big picture that, hey, we're changing the world. We're changing the world. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse to their industry. Pulse Welcome to, their to industry. Electric People. We have Dave Madsen on the show. Check out Tim Ballard. Jeff Curl. Sheckler. Kenzie Watts. The League presents Electric People. What's up, everybody? Welcome to a special episode of Electric People. At least it was special for me. So I had a guest co-host this week in Jordan Williams, and we sat down with Dave Logan. So if you're unfamiliar with Dave Logan's work, he's, he's most well-known for co-authoring the book Tribal Leadership, which it, it's a personal favorite of mine. It's actually a top-five career book for me, and it's established a lot of the principles um, that I've used in my career and that I've seen work effectively with sales teams. So the book itself was a New York Times bestseller. Um, it's actually available, the audio is available for free on the Zappos website. Tony Shea over at Zappos um, also read the book and found it so instrumental to their culture that they integrated a lot of the concepts from the book into their culture and they offer it uh, for free on their website as kind of a gift to the world. But Dave's backstory is really interesting. So he got his PhD in organizational communication um, at the University of Southern California at the Annenberg School. Um, he's been on the faculty at the Marshall School of Business at USC for almost 25 years. He's been the Associate Dean of Executive Education. Um, he's also on faculty at the Getty Leadership Institute and the American College of Physical Executives. Uh, he teaches in the International Center for Leadership. He co-founded a company called CultureSync, which does management consulting. Um, he co-authored at least four books. Uh, Tribal Leadership is the one that uh, I'm most familiar with, but also another really popular one is The Three Laws of Performance. Uh, he's been a contributing writer at CBS Money Watch. He's the editor of seven e-journals at Social Science Research Networks. He gives talks and lectures on leadership and organizational culture, but he's also been interviewed by CNN, Fox, National Public Radio, and actually most of the major US networks. So he's written for CNN, The Huffington Post, The Gallup Business Journal, and his TED Talk, if you haven't seen his TED Talk, it's awesome. Uh, has over a half million views. So he was twice profiled in Forbes magazine, and it described Logan as an internationally admired USC management professor and a paradigm shifter. And then Toastmasters magazine noted that Dave Logan is one of the most natural and accomplished speakers you are likely to find. We actually had the same experience. Uh, he spoke to us at our West Coast Leadership Conference. And so it was awesome to, uh, to sit down with him and have a conversation on his work. Primarily focuses on culture and why it is one of the most important things to get right in having a successful business. So on that note, sit back and enjoy our conversation with Dave Logan. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Electric People. We have Mr. Dave Logan on the show today. How are you, Dave? I'm great. Thank so excited for... to have you on. When I first got this job, um, I was looking for a brand. I was looking for an identity. I was looking for some sort of symbol or name or set of values to, to create some oneness amongst the teams. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, he's like, have you read the book Tribal Leadership? And I was immediately really interested in it. And um, I said, no. And I devoured the book in like, and I went through it like a time and a half in like a day. Because mm -hmm. everything that, that it was hitting on, I was like, this is what we need. This is just like us. Your book talks about you know, a certain amount of people and if you have their contacts in your, in your phone and you know their names and you recognize them and you have a unique um, kind of like esoteric connection to something, you have a tribe. And I was like, it's not a sales, it's a tribe. That's really what it is. And so, um, you know, we branded our group, our, our name is Tribe mm -hmm. and it's largely due to your work. So um, 
I'm really excited to dive in and talk about the principles and how they relate to our group. And thank you so much for being here and sharing with us. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's a real honor. I didn't know that any of that was happening. So what's really exciting is the book came out in 2008 that we did a full rewrite in 2011 when it went to paperback. And it was in 2008, like five people bought copies. One of them was my mom. But Thanks, mom. It's, <laughs> but it's just how interesting it is because of the five people, like one of them was Tony Shea at Zappos. And so we got these, these people that- He was one of the original, like early, like people that picked the book up? Yeah, yeah. And just and heard about it and- Yeah, we're not quite sure how he got it, but he did. And then he sent out this tweet that really changed everything. Because he'd built the Zapp, he and others had built the Zappos culture without our help. But he said, I read this book and it, it captured what, or codified what we had done intuitively at Zappos. But the reason that was important for him was then going forward as their scale was doing this, most companies when they scale, their culture tanks. And so he said, if we can just think of ourselves as tribes, multiple tribes, and then have each one develop a great culture, maintain a great culture, then we can scale that you know, as big as we need to and, and never lose it. So just on your point, it's interesting how the book fell into just the right hands. So then when it came out in 2011, it hit the top of the New York Times. So it had clearly kind of generated a wave. Then I'd done a TED talk in there. So my reason for saying all that is it's really fun, amazing, and yet somehow oddly predictable that that would have happened. Yeah. And it's great that we're meeting now because Ashley, who's over there, and I are doing really a rewrite because a lot's changed. We've learned a ton. But the most important things we've learned are from people like the both of you that have implemented it. So we're really not here to, to teach the new version. We're here to find people like you and ask, what did you do? What was useful? What wasn't? And then mm -hmm. what new things did you uncover? So we're excited to work with you. Yeah, and I think our experience has been um, interesting and unique because you, know, you talked about Zappos and Shea. Where were they at in 2008, like in their trajectory? Were they kind of at the top yet or were they still climbing? Do you know? Well, a lot was going really well yeah. and a lot was going really badly. Oh, okay. And of the things that was going really badly, at, originally Zappos was just a front-end website. So mm -hmm. you'd go on and you'd order Nike, but then they would have to fulfill that by going through the Nike system. Yeah. And so not all the systems were the same. And so their watershed moment was they looked at their values, and my understanding is tribal leadership had a lot to do with it. And they said, if we are really serious about these values, what do we need to do that we're not doing? And what do we need to stop doing that we are doing? And the answer to both was the same, which is we need our own fulfillment center where we buy all the shoes, put them in the fulfillment center, which is in Kentucky, it's right next to the UPS hub, and that way we can get it in the UPS system right away. We control everything, because hmm. they don't want to be in the, in the position, since they valued wow customer service, of explaining to someone, you know, really sorry you didn't get your shoes, but we put it into Nike, but Nike's backlogged. And so that watershed moment was really where they got to probably stage four, then even five, because at that point they were doing something that no online retailers were doing. Yeah. Well, and I think the interesting thing about um, our group is, so we've been doing, a lot of us have been doing direct sales for a really long time. So by the time I picked up your book, uh, personally, I was probably 11 years into my direct sales career. Uh, Jordan, you were somewhere in there, nine or 10 years in the, your sales career. So we had run a lot of different teams. And, and, you know, I, I assimilate with Shay and saying like, hey, a lot of the stuff you kind of do intuitively, but the cool thing is we started this venture right at the same time as we read the book. So we were actually able to start with it. 
right? And so, um, you know, when we were trying to figure out what is our group about, what do we want to embody, yeah. how do we want this to feel, how are we going to deal with the problems we ran into before with entitlement, with superstars, with people that only cared about themselves, with high commissions. And so the book actually was kind of like a guiding thing for us where it's like, hey, I believe in that. I already knew that, but I hadn't thought of it like that. And so we were able to kind of put the framework in first and then run with it. So it's like someone kind of gave us an instruction manual in some, to some degree. And we had to translate it for, for sure. our world, right? But it was, it's been supremely helpful um, because, you know, you, you, a lot of people that we hire to come speak will come speak and then jet out, you know, and they're, they're with the group for 40 minutes and right. 42 of those minutes or whatever they were talking. Uh, you came in and spent the whole day with us. So you might have even yeah. heard people saying like, oh, this guy's level five and they're a little generous with the level five title around here but you know it's become a part of like the language and the vernacular and 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 stuff like that and and we have a whole lot of questions so um one of the questions or one of the things that i'm interested in is how did you identify how did you pick like team culture as kind of like the predictor of success there are so many things that you could study and dive deep into how did you identify that the indicator of success is, is that, or one of the most significant indicators of success is that? Yeah, sure, so this, is, this might be a little bit of a boring answer, but I'll try to go quick. So my mother used to joke, she dropped me off at preschool and I never left. So I was just always involved in education up until today. And at some point when you've gone to school enough, you flip from being a student to a professor, with mm-hmm. a little bit of overlap. And so when I joined what was just then the USC, University of Southern California Business School, became the Marshall School a little later, is we, we kind of knew that there were four big things. There was strategy, structure, systems, and then a distant fourth that no one really wanted to think a lot about was culture. And the people who cared about culture were the people that no one else in the business school took seriously. They hung out in the management department, kind of the joke was they smoked a lot of weed, they're super liberal, whereas the rest of the business school is very conservative, financially oriented. And I found, because I had formal training in engineering and kind of systems, that I was really different from people in culture. I wasn't like, I wasn't approaching this as a soft fuzzy. And the more you talk to people at the senior most level in companies, and you ask them what's important, is it strategy, is it structure, is it systems, all those are. But what's the one thing that keeps you up at night? What's the one thing that if you get right, determine success in the others? And everybody was saying culture, but these were CEOs of companies. These Mm. were CEOs who were concerned about the stock price of their company. And so what I and my co-authors tried to do in tribal leadership was really just take, sorry, I'm doing weird things with my hands here, to take this distant four, which was culture, and elevate it so that people would consider it as important. But the truth is, as you both know, when you get in, if you can make culture as good as it can be, a great culture can save a failing strategy. But if you give a great strategy to a failing culture, you're dead. They just won't perform, they'll trash it. And so we began to realize over time as we collected data, not only are those four equally important, if you have to put your emphasis on one, make it culture. And then a bunch of other writers kind of jumped in and began saying something similar. Like Jim Collins said, first get the right people on the bus, Mm -hmm. then figure out where the bus is going. And we'd already written tribal leadership by the time he said that. So it was really in, when we realized that kind of all the leading experts were saying the same thing, we all had data, and it was like, wow. And this was a watershed moment. I'll just say one more thing. Having been at this business a long time, so going back to like the early 2000s, before we had a book, 
I would go on stage and I would argue, but I'm a debater, so it's kind of fun, with mm -hmm. crowds of hostile finance people. What is this hostile? Hostile. <laughs> like, what, what? I know those people. Like, what is this culture thing about? Yeah. Why are you talking about culture? Why don't you talk about things that matter? Like, like, like it's hard to quantify, right? It's one of those things that's kind of hard to, to, to show on a spreadsheet, right? Well, it is, unless you have a rating system, which is what we hopefully put out, which was look at your EBITDA, look at your financial metrics, look at your multiple if you're publicly traded. Like, those are all things you can put on a spreadsheet. And look what types of cultures you have. They're primarily stages two and three, or levels two and three. And given that, you're in real trouble. So the minute people could quantify it, and they saw it as a scale, that changed everything. Because as you know, when you get high performers, and you say, your group is a three out of five, that's not good enough. They want to be five out of five. Well, how do I get from three to five? Well, among other things, you have to be less focused on yourself. So it gave people a way to get into groupness as individuals because they wanted to win as individuals. Why, why do you think that it was this distant for? Is it just because of the lack of understanding or that it hadn't been quantified? Because it's interesting to me that you mentioned these things that it was pretty much unanimous, unanimously understood, but why a distant fourth? Like why was there that gap there? Yeah, it's a great question. So one of the main reasons is that when companies invested money in culture, it was never really clear what they were getting. So we've had a lot of mm -hmm. workshops, we've had meetings, we've had groups that get together and talk, but contrast that to, we hired McKinsey to work up a new strategy and we got a notebook, which is its own problem. You don't want a notebook. <laughs> like a binder? A binder. With paper in it? With paper in it and, and PowerPoints. Where do you put the, it? No. Well, up on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you never look <laughs> at it. But the point is, you spend a lot of money on yeah. McKinsey, and they gave you this binder and PowerPoint, and you say, we got that. And we know if we followed that, we'd make a fortune. Well, did you follow that? Well, no. Well, why? Well, we had a change in leadership. The market shifted. So, but at least you can point to something specific. And the biggest one, where the most money is spent, is actually restructuring. Like General Motors has been a, in a perpetual state of restructuring for like 35 years. <laughs> and so you hire a firm and they move your little post-it notes around. The post-it notes are all people and departments, draw new lines and it looks amazing. But that doesn't really get you anywhere. But at least you have something tangible. Mm -hmm. But with culture, it wasn't really tangible. So what we came along and did is said, treat this, like pretend you as a business executive, you're a doctor. And this is not really that hard. If you're a doctor and a patient who comes in, which is your business, you don't just put them on antibiotics. You figure out what's wrong. It's called a diagnosis. Diagnose what's wrong. Figure out what's holding them back. And then once you've made that diagnosis, you get really precise. That's how you keep people in optimal health. So you want your business to be in optimal health? Diagnose before you treat. It's not any more difficult than that. Um, it's it's. Why do you think it was, you said you wrote the book in 2008. Mm -hmm. Why do you think companies in like the 70s weren't talking about culture? It feels like kind of a new thing, right? Well, this but is- But it's existed forever. This is the weird thing. So in corporate America, it, it's really new. Culture is only a few decades old. Yeah. But I mentioned kind of before we got going on this that a lot of my students, and these are senior graduate students in, in the executive MBA program where I've been around forever, a lot of them are ex-military, or military, and this is part of their effort to transition out. 
And you talk to anybody in the military back in the 1970s with mm -hmm. Vietnam, is morale important? Everybody knew it was important. 100%. Yeah. Sun Tzu knew, knew it was important, right? This Chinese writer. Mm -hmm. So in the military, people have known forever that morale is not just important, it's vital. And this is where a lot of us have kind of a frustration. Because if the military knew that, and you don't get more bottom line than the military, if the military knew that, why did it take corporations so long to catch up? I'm not sure I have a good explanation, but when you start connecting the work that we and others have done in culture to what the military already knew, and you kind of connect the dots on that, the light bulb goes on for everybody. Do you think the military like developed it kind of like like kind of unconsciously competent or did they have some genius thing figured out where some psychiatrist looked at it and was like hey you need to invest in this right because it almost seems like how do they create such an amazing functional cultural like org and and winning team how did they do that how did they get that right well it's building on thousands of years of writing and thinking so the word general right it just means not specific. So a general is someone who's concerned about everything. So the person that you task with winning a war or a battle is a general. So their job is not just to think about tactics or ammo or do we have the hill or not. It's to think about whatever we need to think about to accomplish the mission. That's what a general is. And so the generals then, as they began looking at what was important, the most important thing, or at least as important as anything else, is morale. I'm gonna give you an example. So Patton in World War II made this dash for Germany. I think he covered more ground in less time than any other military force in history up until that point. And there's a moment, it's actually captured in the movie Patton, where he says, I'm so proud of these men. I'm saying men because there weren't a lot of women there. So proud of these men. Like they, they've gone without hot food. They just keep going because they know like I do that this war can still be lost. And so he understood if you can build a sense of, you know, we can do it, camaraderie, morale, culture, that that overcomes a lack of food. Mm -hmm. That overcomes the odds. And so when companies began to address that, here's what, here's what happened. One of the things is companies that had a better culture could s sell themselves to a competitor or whomever for a lot more money. There was actually a cultural multiplier. And so when Tony Shea and others sold Zappos to Amazon and everybody's job dropped about the price and the word got around, Wall Street's in the East Coast, but got around the investment community in Palo Alto that there's a premium that you get paid if you have a good culture, suddenly everybody wanted to know how to do that. So that's kind of where we are now. And I kind of alluded to this, I'll just say one more thing. There was a big study that was done a couple years ago actually a little more than that, I think it might have been 2016, some finance professors in the East Coast, big famous schools, Columbia and Duke, and they asked something like 1,900 senior executives, let's say you wanted to buy a company and you know it's got a really bad culture, an unhealthy culture, toxic culture, what discount would you expect? So discounts, common finance term. So would you, would you expect a discount of 30%, 40%, 50%? And they, the professors, all, I think, I believe all were finance. They were surprised by the answer, which was we wouldn't buy them at any price. Hmm. Because we know if you buy a toxic culture and introduce that toxicity into a group that's working, that's a cancer. Like, it'll take everything down. Wow. That's, 
I was, for some reason, the number in my head was 30%. I don't know why. <laughs> I was like, it's 30%. And then you're like, didn't it at all. I was like, trick question from the education <laughs> guy, right? <laughs> um, so for those that haven't read the book, walk us through your quick summary of the levels. I know you do this front and back in your sleep, but walk us through the kind of the theory of the five uh, tribal le levels of leadership and, and what kind of denotes each level. Okay, sure. So really quick, I noticed you, you corrected yourself earlier. Instead of stages, you said levels. Is oh, yeah. Is there a reason for that? As you answer that, that question, help us understand. Is, is there a difference there? Um, yeah, there is a difference. And so part of what, so let's have to kind of go back to 2008. There were a lot of people that were writing books, and, and they included the word level. And so we all got together, John and Haley and me, the authors of the book. And I think it was John who said, well, let's just make it stages. and. We all said, okay. And looking back, they really are levels. And the difference is, like if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, mm -hmm. I kind of put this shirt on randomly. Like these are levels. And so once you handle your physiological needs, then you can go up to safety. But at each level, it transcends and includes the level before it. Yeah. So if I'm self-actualizing and suddenly I'm not safe, an earthquake hits then you go right back down to that level. So self-actualization includes, think of this as a checklist, you've handled the concerns at all the levels. And so in doing the next book, which is really gonna take everything that we've learned, including we hope a lot from Sunrun and kind of put it together, we're writing the book that frankly we didn't entirely have the guts to write in 2008. There's a lot we just weren't sure about, but there's a lot people have learned. So to answer your question. Yeah. So, so the levels. Yeah, so level one, so the theme of it, kind of what people say or imply, and really everything they say is life sucks. And it's something has gone so wrong with the world that I'm in this awful situation. And level one, like think of situations where the rule of law is no longer valid. You know, I have food, but you don't have food, and I'm, I feel unsafe. Like it's places of, of complete decay of that social order. And so in organizations where you find that, sometimes people will do criminal activities. So think of Wells Fargo that famously, people would just open accounts. You have their address, just do it. But this is where we really have to bring all this stuff into 2021. So we've been really interested in workplace shootings. There's a lot of workplace shootings. And that's an element of, of level one that this whole thing is so wrong that I just have to go in and write these injustices. They gotta be careful there because mental illness is clearly sure. a role there. So we're not just saying that culture alone is responsible, yeah. but we think it contributes. And where a lot of the work that, that my colleagues and I have done in the last few years is looking at doctors, and unfortunately the news for doctors is not good. So doctors commit suicide at twice the rate of the general population when you adjust for the number of hours that they've worked. And the reason is the cultures where they work often exude that, kind of life sucks. Come in, do your job, don't see your family, don't exercise, just see one patient after another, spend all your time on the computer. So level one's a real problem. Is it that they're dealing with people too, like that is constant sad stories or people that have put themselves in certain situations or people that you know, could have these injuries or sicknesses it's the result of the way that they're living so they get more life sucks stuff? It can be a lot of that. Mm -hmm. So one of my colleagues and I spent some time in Tucson, and, and this could be any, any city of any size in the United States. And so you got people like paramedics 
and you got people who would treat, people who would come into the emergency department. And one of the issue, Arizona gets hot in the summer, mm -hmm. is somebody's AC wouldn't work. Someone older who didn't have the money to fix it, all the food had gone bad, it's easier to dial 911. And so if you're the doctor treating that, if you're the paramedic, there's just this, this sense of absolute futility. Hmm. Like the situation is so broken, the world is so broken, that you could see how that would lead one sure. to sort of that. But I really want to emphasize, like life sucks is not it's, not, it's not ever an accurate description. In fact, none of the levels are accurate descriptions. They're a way of responding to things. So when you get a culture, a group, a tribe, that looks at a situation and just concludes, decides, life sucks, this isn't worth it. Do whatever you can to survive. That's where you get these really pathological behaviors. Like prison or something like that, right? It could be prison. I mean, we have to be really careful about that in 2021 with the social justice movement and, and, and a lot of that. Because often people find themselves in prison for reasons other than they did things that were worse than what other people did. So hmm. we're really trying to learn a lot from the social justice movement. Um, so again, like life sucks and can kind of happen anywhere. Sure. So level two is not life sucks, it's my life sucks. And this is where a lot of corporate tribes find themselves. What's the percentage here? Because I know you break it down, there's a percentage of groups that right. find themselves at each level. Yeah, so remember we're measuring tribes, not people, not companies, not business units. So a tribe is between 20 and 150. Then you get the stability at a tribe. So level one is 2%, but we're talking about employed tribes. So when you look kind of in society as a whole, we think that number is actually much, much larger. Internationally, that number is much larger. But in employed situations, it's about 2%. Got it. Yeah. Level two, my life sucks, is 25%. So it's significant. It's very significant. And that's my life sucks. And most groups can find themselves in that. So we're talking about sales. And this is where people say, I've knocked on doors, no one's saying yes, this sucks. Or my boss is micromanaging me and this sucks and it's not working. I've got a script and it's not working. Like it's just not working. And that just overall sense that it's not working makes people conclude that I'm just gonna do the minimum to not get fired. Like what do I have to do to just kind of stay here? Mm -hmm. And that's, that can be a problem in any organization, right, of any size. So that's where people do the minimum to not get fired Innovation is basically zero. Someone comes up with a great idea. What people say is, yeah, we tried that before. It didn't work then. Won't work now. Can you just like go? So that's level two. It's just a place of despair. Mm. But that is also the zone of burnout, where I feel like I've tried everything that I can do. None of it's working. I'm just so tired. I don't know what else to do. It's exhausting, right? Because yeah. you, you see these problems and issues and play that over and over in your head and it's, it's exhausting, I'm sure. Well, exactly. And so when you spend time in a group that's at level two, you notice a couple of things. One is if anyone there is a natural comedian, everybody's laughing all the time because you're making jokes about the values on the wall. Mm. You're making jokes about yeah. the leadership of the company. So it doesn't feel miserable. Exactly. And you look at it from space and you would see people congregating together, leaning in, laughing. It looks like a team. It looks fun, yeah. But when you look at what they're actually talking about, it's What's this- the joke about the broken system? Or exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. And so the, what people produce is, is really low. But at the end of the day, when people walk over to the parking structure, get back in their car, they're just toast. They're so tired. All they want to do is go home, microwave something, watch TV, and go to bed. Because it's just so draining. So hmm. level three is I'm great and you're not. So this is the zone of personal competitiveness. And this is mostly what you see in sales. So most sales groups, you, you do all you can to incentivize the individual. Mm -hmm. So if you go out and sell, you'll make this. And if you go out and sell, you'll make this. But what's not encouraged is sort of the group. But the best sales teams are at, by best I mean most productive, are actually at four or five. But let's talk about three. So where this shows up a lot is in expert communities. So it could be, you know, I spent a lot of time at a university. That's classically stage three. So when the pandemic, or level three. So when the pandemic started, everybody had an opinion. Every professor had an opinion. They all have PhDs. Here's what I think. No, you're wrong. Here's what I think. Here's really? what I think. That's interesting. And it's mind numbing. And so when it happened at, at USC, sneakily, I brought somebody in who had actually done online teaching at the University of Arizona. She's sitting over there. Mm -hmm. And suddenly everybody would listen to her because she had done it. And so where someone says, I'm great because my PhD is in economics from Columbia, and then this little voice says, actually not so little, says, look, I've, I've done this for years. None of you know what you're talking about. That just silenced everybody. So I'm great you're not is all about, I have the stats to prove it that I'm somehow better. But again, that's really draining too. So you go to your car at the end of the day, after having kind of put everybody down, put them in their place, you get, you get in your car, and you're less tired than at stage two. At stage two, you just have no energy. But at stage three, the day just feels like a set of battles. All day long, I'm battling. All day long, people come to me and I solve their problem and I tell them why they're wrong. Don't do it this way, do it that way. And so level three is a place that burns people out. And when they are burned out, they fall to level two. So level three, 49%. That was my question. Why, why do you think that one's so high? That's the highest by yeah. quite, a, quite a large margin. Why is that one so high? In part, and I say this as someone who spent my life in education in other fields, you look at how does somebody get a job. They get a job by proving that they are better than the other applicants. So I get my university. How do we train people to go get a job? It's situation, activity, result. So I was in this situation. I did this, I did that, I did this, other people said no, but I prevailed, and the result is our profits jumped 20%. It's literally how we train people. And so when somebody gets hired, you have outperformed all of your competitors. And then you look at your resume, and it's one I statement after another. I did this, I had this title, I got these, <laughs> right, these results, I this. <laughs> and so then I show up, and now I'm an employee at, at this company. And so I look and it's kind of cute. You have your whiteboard over there and you have your chairs mm -hmm. and it's kind of cute. But you know, I was brought in to really make things happen. So as soon as there's a meeting, all right, everybody, everybody stop talking. Here's what I think. The problem is when you have a tribe of people that all behave like that, no one's listening and there's no real leadership. There's no gelling together that creates the weeness. So, if you just kind of stop, so if you stop there, 75% of 
little microcultures or tribes are at level three or below. And that dramatically underperforms against what you want. So level four is we're great and they're not. And just look at sports. So famously, uh, Phil Jackson wrote this, this really great book called 11 Rings, and he hasn't been so great since he left coaching, but, and so he, in one chapter, is talking about how he'd read tribal leadership, and he said, so this, this stage three or level three thing, it's clearly not gonna win games, because if, if I get the ball, what am I gonna do? I'm great, and you're not. I'm great, and you're not. So if I'm Michael Jordan, and I get the ball, I'm gonna shoot, because I'm great, and you're not. And so he, Phil Jackson writes, I needed to get them to level four, and my first conversation was with Michael, talking about Michael Jordan. And he famously benched Michael Jordan until he understood teamwork. Because then you get to level four, now you've got all the individual talent that gels around a cause, that gels around a purpose. And for people who haven't been through that transition, it's a little difficult to explain. It sounds more like maybe theory, but I've been kind of my work for the first probably 10 years after Tribal Leadership came out was working with sales groups in particular and taking them from three to four. Mm. And as soon as you did that, their results wouldn't just move up 20%, 30%. We'd often see a five to seven X improvement. So John Mackey, CEO of Whole Foods, actually thought it was more like 1600%. Because, and he was looking at, at sales at Whole Foods stores. So at four, you get this we-ness. And so you walk in and I'm part of this group so there's no loss of self. I still have all my capabilities, but what we're doing is so amazing. It's so cool. I can't wait to be a part of this. And then a lot of work, like at level three, that would have just trained you, you're actually more energized at the end of the day than you are at the beginning. So back to burnout for a second. Healthcare groups that get to level four find that they're really, they don't get burned out. People can work long hours, but they're sort of inoculated. But more to the point, those groups are magnets for new people. So all you have to do if you want to recruit and you've got a real level four group is just bring somebody in, make them a guest over there, and then ask them at the, at the other end of that, like, what did you think? And they can't wait to join. That's really good advice with what we do. That's awesome. <laughs> well, it's really true. And I, you know, I think this is probably why sales groups gravitate towards this idea so much mm -hmm. is because salespeople are highly, at least we found, highly developmental. Like they read the books on their own, they, they, they sign up for the conferences, they listen to the podcasts, they ask advice, they want it. There is a sense of, okay, I'm in a performance-based job and I want to perform, which I'm super grateful for. We don't, have, we don't have people that have to be here that punch a clock to get a check, which is nothing wrong with that, that's just not our world. Um, and so when you look at them like having kind of a propensity for level three, the comp structure almost kind of creates that where it's like, hey, you go handle you and we'll pay you. And if you're a high performer, the results and the rankings and the pay just kind of naturally separates you. But it's really interesting. And I think people, they felt the burnout, like being a high performing salesperson and doing all the work for yourself. You get the wins and you get the dopamine hits and you get the money. But I've seen people that make crazy money sit and they're like, I'm just gonna go do something else. Like, right. I'm, I'm, I'm smoked. And it's really interesting to me that the fatigue doesn't come from the activity. It right. comes from the lack of purpose or the lack of contribution, it seems. So once you get into level four, and we see it all the time, like our best leaders have infinite energy. Yeah. They don't get tired from a long day. I mean, you and Jordan were talking about his day yesterday, 
where I don't even know what time you got in, forgot to book a flight, woke up this morning, found one, got here, is going back to do more, but you're not tired, yeah. right? So level four is, is, is the area where you start to probably get more energy, right? You start to come alive a little bit more and maybe feel like you're, you're doing what you were kind of built to do a little bit more. Would you say is that accurate? Yeah, exactly. So you get, ener you get more energy from the team than you put into the team. That's, that's well said. It's just like this amplifying effect. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's really true. So I'll, I'll give you a specific example. Kind of early in our work, we met somebody that we would now identify as a great tribal leader. And his name was Lou Horn. You said you would not? I, oh, that I would. You would. Yeah, I right. would identify him as a, as a great sort of tribal leader. You're like, here's a guy that sucks. No. <laughs> yeah, I'll ask that question let, in a minute. Let me talk about somebody who's, who's, of, who's of no value. Lou's like, what the heck, man? <laughs> so at the time, there was this company called C.B. Richard Ellis, this real estate company. They're now known as CBRE, and they're now just a powerhouse. But back then, they, they were much smaller. And Lou was at a lower position than he's, than he's in now. So he asked the question, how do we take a very small sales force and get them to four? And so we took a group off up into Arrowhead in the woods, this place that UCLA owned, and by the fire, kind of after dinner, he outlined if we're really a great real estate company, what clients should we, I think this was the Los Angeles office back then, have as clients? And they just made a list. But clients that we don't currently have. And so then he went around, he had every person say, so for this client, I'm not gonna name him for obvious reasons, but for this possible client, who has any information about him? And somebody would say, well, I went to school with so-and-so who's at that place. And someone else might say, I sometimes play golf with somebody. But scattered in the, in the group was enough power to actually land them as clients. And so Lou would just start writing on this whiteboard, who's got what contacts? And then in the end, Lou said, okay, two of you have the most information. You're gonna go land that, and I'm gonna have your back. And within just a few weeks, they had landed all of those as clients. Hmm. Because it took the individual, so think of this as a salesperson. So I've got my leads, my people, my way of selling, this is why I'm number one. But you take number one at the individual level, and you look at number one at the team level, yeah. and it's a Grand Canyon distance between them. Mm -hmm. And so then people really began to see the difference. If one thing, it's a lot more fun. We get a group working on how are we gonna land this, this whale client as opposed to something that's really small. And so then that caught on. And now that CBRE is this just behemoth in the, in the, in the real estate world, still though, people are incentivized mostly by the individual thing, right? They want their individual compensation. But there's a woman that's been there forever, Darla Longo, and Darla will often, she'll be at a party and she'll find somebody and she'll just make an introduction. That's all she does, is make an introduction and then the local team will close it. So she and her team will be on an invoice for one or 2%, which is really irritating to the accountants, but for the salespeople, it's great. But Darla touches all of those, and so what Darla makes is a lot, <laughs> like a lot, a lot. And more to the point, she, she spends her day connecting. So it's totally fun and effortless for her. Anyway, so what was your percentage at four? 22. 22%. So um, almost the same amount as level two. Yep. And then let's talk about that elusive number five. 
Yeah, so Five is Life is great, and we probably could have done a better job labeling that. So the best recent example is COVID, where the world came together and said, we have a common enemy, and it's not France, it's not yeah. the United States, <laughs> and it's not China, and it's not Russia. It's this virus. Regardless of where it came from, we got a problem. We, we have to do this. And it was just a great example of government agencies, think tanks, private money. You got people like Bill Gates involved, although <laughs> the latest readings on Bill Gates are kind of scary. But anyway, you got, you got gr best people in the world focused on a single problem. And in less than a year, we had a vaccine. And people don't realize what a big deal that is. We've been looking for a vaccine for HIV for decades without really having made much progress. Now, that's a different kind of virus, but sure. still to do that in a year with an efficacy higher than 90%, I mean, we essentially ended the pandemic. So that's an example of level five. Where the, that's the, a great example. Well, so it's not, right? So it's not USC, got to you know, fight on. It's not USC battling Stanford in some football game. It's all of us battling something that can only be solved by everybody coming together. And so my, my friendly advice, which I don't think either of you need because you've already done it, you're already doing it, is Sunrun as a company, this came out in, at the meeting that I attended in San Diego, that is really focused on saving the world. Literally, if we don't figure out solar, if we don't implement this, really bad things are gonna happen. And that's something that gets everybody's attention. So just as an example, I was talking to, He's not really a friend, someone who's an acquaintance, but pretty sure he's a billionaire a few times over. And like, why would he spend time on the phone? And so what I said to him is, I don't know if you have kids, but I have two daughters, they're 12 and nine. What is life gonna be like for them when they get to be older? If we don't get this climate change thing working, then we're gonna have a real problem. But more to the point, I'm gonna be dead before a lot of that hits. Most adults are gonna be dead by the time the worst of that hits. But my nine-year-old isn't. My 12-year-old isn't. So how do we create a better world for them? Mm -hmm. And we just find that that kind of moves past a lot of you know, the nonsense. And I've talked to people who don't think that climate change is the effect of, of human beings. I don't try to really get involved in that, other than to say those same individuals will often say, well, the climate is changing. We just don't know the cause. OK, great. So regardless of the cause, we have to make some changes or else sure. we're in trouble. Yeah, I completely That's agree. Five. I, I witnessed a, a recruiting kind of back and forth once on social media, which is a really good place to see kind of, I mean, people just say stuff that they just wouldn't normally say, you know? And so uh, this one group said, hey, this company is the enemy. We got to take them over. You? No, no, no. Okay. I thought Another you were saying, company. did I say it? I was like, crap, I'm exposed. No. <laughs> <laughs> a friend of mine says, guy. Wink, wink. No, uh, this, uh, this company said, hey, we got to go take over these guys. These guys are bad. And then this, the, somebody from that company that was pointed out said, hey, 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 it's not you versus us. It's us versus the utility company. And so they thought like, hey, let's be high level people here. Right. It's them, right? And I, I remember just reading the, the thread and being like, it's, it's, it's not. It's, it's fossil fuels. It's, 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 it's a poor structure to fuel the planet. That's the problem. The problem isn't the utility company. The problem isn't, right. you know, Dave Logan's company. The, the problem is the problem, right? Which I, I love your idea of, um, and actually, if you could talk about the, the hair problem. I had never heard that before, and you talked about sure. it at our conference. 
Yeah, so some of us went to go visit Pixar, and this is before they got bought by Disney. And so we said, so full disclosure here, I didn't think level five was real. I had never seen evidence for it. But one of my co-authors, John King, said, no, no, it's very real. And this is the first time that I ever saw evidence for it. Because in business, everybody knows who their competitor is. We want to outperform this other company. Mm -hmm. And, but we walked into Pixar and we said, who's your competitor? And we expected DreamWorks, Disney, one of those companies. Mm -hmm. And they said, hair. Like, what do you mean hair? They said, we can't render it. And then what I say to people who have kids is, watch Toy Story 1, especially with your kids, and you'll see what they mean. They could render fire engines, they could render plants, they could even render faces. I'm gonna watch it right now. But, <laughs> well, which is one of the reasons they focused on toys. like, now kids, look at the hair, right? Look at the hair. <laughs> and so just think about that. So here's a group that up until recently has never had a commercial or critical flop. Right. And Pixar had one at the start of the pandemic, but they never had a flop. And yet, what were they obsessing about? Not are we making more money than DreamWorks or Disney for our animation stuff. They were obsessing about absolute artistic purity. And they were spending all this time on it. And when they finally discovered it, it they were making the movie Monsters, Inc., but that movie was pretty well into production. So they created a new movie that was all about hair. And the movie was Brave. So it was the... It was the woman, sorry, uh, it was the woman with big, right, red hair, and the man had a big beard, which is also hair, and it was about a bunch of bears, and they had hair, so all the characters had hair, all this hair. And that was their way of announcing to the world, we cracked the code on hair. But if you think about that, they're aiming for perfection, and as a side benefit, their movies are universally outstanding, mm -hmm. by any measurable means. So give me, I, I, I'm always interested in like, the, your, your books are, and your studies are awesome because you give like those tangible examples. You talk about Pixar, you talk about Zappos. Uh, I don't know if you're willing to name names, but talk about a group that just, it didn't work out and why it didn't work out because they couldn't grasp this. I think the, 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 the common thing that I've heard people ask you is how do you level up? How right. do you go from three to four? That's probably one of the most common questions. Talk about a group that tried that and failed and why they failed if you have a specific example. Well, I can't name names because I don't want to get sued. Okay. And, but I'll, I'll tell you, like, there's a class. And it would be like hospitals that are pretty well known to be horrendous places to work and where you would never want your mom to go. So my mother had a, she had pneumonia. She just passed away in, um, I think it's been about five years. But she had, um, she had pneumonia and she had a seizure as part of that. And so the closest hospital was one of these hospitals where like, you don't want to go. Hmm. And so it took me, my dad called me, and it took me a long time in LA traffic to get to where they were. And there was my mother in a gurney in the hallway. Why hadn't you moved her in a room? There are lots of empty rooms. And I walked past a meeting of doctors and nurses and they were doing that sarcastic laughter at two. And it was all about how epically not great the patients were. And I overheard one of them use the word geezer. And I don't know if they were talking about my mom, who was in the gurney, or my dad, who was pretty ill at that point, and they hadn't even gotten him a chair. So he was just standing there. So I later did work in that hospital. That hospital was a client. And they were so entrenched in the mindset of my life sucks, we could not get them out of it. 
So we'd, wow. we, so we'd have meetings and say, let's make a list of what you do have. Like, what are your resources? No, we tried that. That won't work. And so when, when you find a group that's just so, how do I say it? Like they just, they're just embracing the mediocrity and they won't let go of it. It's hopeless, right? It's, it's almost really like, hopeless, yeah. yeah. Interesting. You talk a lot about groups and this kind of level for a tribe. Can you like individualize that? And is it yeah. accurate to say, so, so the, the one question that I have is, it's really important in my opinion for somebody to be able to be self-aware and understand where they are, but it's a really hard reality sometimes. Sometimes we don't want to face that. Yeah. Is there a good way to identify, to, to self-identify when you're in a certain, well, at a certain level? Yeah, we're, we're working on that. That's, hard, right? that's one of the things that, that's going to go in the rewrite, but one of the things that has... You're like a breathalyzer or something. Like, <laughs> exactly. Oh, crap, I'm at two? I, I would assume that most people think that they're probably a little bit higher level than they actually are, right? It's just naturally, probably. Well, the short answer is your tribe will tell you. And so the, the way that for a long time Zappos still, Zappos did, I don't know if they still do, their performance appraisals was all the usual questions. And then at the bottom, pardon me, was what tribal leadership level does this person express most often? This is like an employee and, survey yeah. or a team survey? They're answering it for their... Their performance appraisal. So. It could be a manager writing it for a person, but then they got into these teams. So it's really your team telling you, I'm sorry, Jordan, you're at level three. You're constantly telling everybody why you're better. And generally, if somebody got a three or lower, you didn't really have a future at Zappos. So That's, a, that's such a simple and great idea, though. It's a simple and great idea, and it's a little bit dangerous because you can realize that could be weaponized. Because if, really if you really want to get rid of somebody, so at Zappos, one of, the, like, one of their things is be humble. And sometimes, well, you're arrogant is a way of getting rid of somebody. If you just kind of spread the word that this person's arrogant. So remember, all this stuff's perception, right? It's, it's, not, right. it's not real. But what we are big fans of is a group, we've got some surveys to, to do this. It's got to be anonymous. It's got to be anonymous that would then collect the group. So we would ask you, like, what tribal stage do you think you express most of the time? And you'd give us your number. And it might be a range. And then you have everybody answer it. So here's your number. But here's what the group said. And, and, and where it's interesting is when you get somebody giving themselves a lower score and the group thinks they're great, those are actually among the best leaders. The worst leaders are the reverse, where I think I'm in level five, but everybody else thinks I'm in three. Interesting, because the, the common feedback that, one, the thing that I saw when I read the book, and I think what Jordan's talking about is, when I'm like, okay, there's five levels, I'm probably not five, realistically, but I'm probably four, and then I'm reading it, and I'm like, you're describing the two and three, and I'm like, I do that sometimes. Sure. Or the, especially three, but even down into two, it's like, no, I've done that. Like, and so I think people self-diagnose, in my experience, higher, because they want to perform, they want to achieve, and this yeah. is such a hard thing to do to all of a sudden stop self-promoting and stop achieving for the sake of achieving and start like really, but if you think about it, like parenthood is probably a little bit more mm -hmm. of a more pure system like that because mm -hmm. I don't parent my kids so that you think I'm awesome. It absolutely is. And it's, it's nauseating when people go on social media and just tell the world what great parents they are. 
A question for you as I read um, John Maxwell's Five Levels of Leadership. Have mm -hmm. you read that book? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, they're different takes on, on levels and, and they're kind of like working on it differently, but I actually think they work. Mm -hmm. So if, if memory serves, uh, you know, we use John Maxwell's five levels a lot and we say, you know, our mission statement, which you've seen is we're level four and five leaders, the real kind. And then it's got pieces from mm -hmm. a whole bunch of people like you that have done really good research that we've just kind of attached ourselves to. Yeah. Um, but his first level is you get a title. So it's like, congratulations, Jordan, you are a district manager. Yep. Right, and so some people lead by saying, "I'm the DM. You have to listen to me." Le uh, level two, and in, in, in the five levels, there is um, relationships. Mm -hmm. hey, I like we're friends. Do what I say because I'm your friend. Right. Level three is production. Do what I say because I'm capable of more. You score two points a game. I score twenty points a game. Do what I say. Uh, level four is you create more leaders, and then level five is you're like the embodiment of these values. You are something. Right. So uh, did, did that book have any influence on it? And what do you, what do you think as far as correlations? Because in my head, they kind of work together, but they're different takes. Does that make sense? Yeah, they're different takes. And there's a lot of levels. I mean, there's the most famous one is Maslow. Um, I was certainly familiar with John Maxwell's work. I don't know if my co-authors were. His work, it comes from a different area. And then Jim Collins has five levels also, interestingly. Mm -hmm. And they they sort of work together, I would say. Most of his levels fall into our level three. Most of Jim Collins or John uh, Maxwell? Most of John, John Maxwell. So, so kind of level three and four. So I have a title. Because it's about the individual or something? Or? So I'm great, I have a title. Mm -hmm. And then it moves up to, to kind of four, where there's a lot of overlap is in five. But again, we wanted to go for something broader. So, and I don't want to in any way throw Maxwell under the bus. I think his work is really important, but I'll just give you an example. We worked with a bank many years ago, but it was a bank up in the Bay Area, and they had done this engagement survey, and they maxed out engagement. They could not get a higher score on engagement. And so, but then we measured them on tribal leadership. They were kind of mid-level four, which is we're great. So remember, we're trying to measure groupness because the, the thing that we're going after is people without a tribe doesn't even mean anything. So I am my tribe. My tribe is me. And that's something you kind of can't get away from. So part of what we're saying is you want to surround yourself with people who value the same things, with people who want to make the same kind of difference that you want to make in the world. And that kind of takes us away from the individual focus. It's yeah, the social thing. Yeah, because a lot of the guys will devour these books and they're like, oh, that's true, that's true, and I was interested in how they work together. Um, for you as like a, a student of leadership and development and, and these incredible cultures, who's getting it right? Who are you a big fan of right now? Oh, well, I mean, there's a lot. Um, I always think like if you're like, a, if you're like a designer, you probably have things and you, you can't separate yourself from being like, that's great, right? So you probably, I mean, is it something where you see, like I think of like presidential addresses, mm -hmm. you know, and be like, that was good or oh my gosh, that was bad, right? Like who's, who's, who, are, who are you a fan of? You mean people that are doing it? Or, or teams or whatever, them? like no, yeah, like what, what companies, teams, groups, individuals are, are you a fan of by, by their work? A lot up in, in Silicon Valley and a lot that use Agile or Scrum frameworks and part of what drives them is, you know, you got an iPhone there, I think it was iPhone 6, had 2,500 changes. 
from the one before it, or maybe it was six to seven, but 2,500 changes. So just think about that. Every change had to work, and every change had to work together with all the others. Like name a non-tech example where people have done that. But in tech, Steve Jobs commented on this, we've now gotten to the point where problems are too big for just one brain. And his friend, Steve Wozniak, had written every line of code in the Apple II. Every line of code that was in the chips or the software that you download when you turn it on. And that's no longer possible. And so in tech, there is no option but to get to and stay in level four. Hmm. Because if you're saying, I'm great, you're not, then you're gonna trash what somebody else is doing. Or you're gonna ignore what another group does. No, I'm doing my thing, my thing is more important. And we all know what happens when that turns into a new technology device, it doesn't work. So a lot of the groups in Silicon Valley have gotten this right because they have no choice. So we're fans of a lot of those. But also they don't have a lot of the baggage. So you, know, you're, you have an advantage, you're fairly new. And you're in a fairly new industry. A lot of people didn't really think about solar until fairly recently. Mm -hmm. But you look at a lot of these organizations, like again General Motors, there's this legacy that goes back or Ford, the manufacturer. People still talk about Henry Ford. And so groups that have been able to get rid of that baggage, focus on the future, and ask the question, what do we need? And then find ways to design systems and processes so they're not based on ego. Those are the places that get it right. So, I mean, if you want specifics, R&D groups at Apple, a lot of, sorry, your you know, competitor, the, um, the customer service at Tesla could not be worse. Like it is just unbelievably bad. And yet, parts of Tesla that are working on product rollout, and I'm talking about the cars, are doing it really well. I've had a bunch of people look into SpaceX, and SpaceX is doing things that are really different. Mm. And so you've got kind of level four, level five, similar to you, it's the view that if we don't get humanity onto another planet, there's gonna be an asteroid or nuclear war or virus or something, like this is, humanity's future is at stake. So those are the places that get it right. What do you think are some things that help people get to that next level? One of the reasons I asked the question of, um, you know, how do you identify where you are? Like how can you self kind of identify where you are is because I think it's important that you can know where you are and also know how to kind of come out of it as a group, as an individual. Who has been the most successful doing that and how do they do that? The most successful people, so, here's the actual answer, is tribal leadership is two books in one. The first one is a book that everybody wants to read, everybody wants to have on their bookshelf, and everybody wants to talk about. The other is a very personal, pointed, pretty damning message to the person. And I would say only about 5% of people ever understand that that other book is in there. So let me talk about that other That's book. That's interesting. The 5%. Curious yeah. now. So, yeah. That 5% says, you Jordan, you Ty, you Dave, you've got a little level three person in your head that thinks you're awesome. We all do for, you know, for reasons. And you talked about this at the San Diego conference. Like you look at your, at your history, you know, I am pretty good. In my own case, I'd say, look at my work, look at companies that I founded, look at movements that I've created. You know, at night, I am pretty awesome. And the key, leader, the key to leadership is not to let that go or move past it or transcend it. I don't know anyone that's ever been able to do that. 
maybe the Dalai Lama or somebody in a religious movement. I've just never met anyone who's been able to do that. So what you want to do is keep that little level three person, that little level three voice in front of you. Because when you see it for what it is, it won't do mischief. So the worst leaders are ones that have lost sight of that. I'm thinking of one in particular, not gonna say the name. And he's convinced himself he is the epitome of level five. You know I want that name. <laughs> I'm sure you do. But he's the epitome of level five. And yet if you ask him, so tell me what, what are you thinking about this? I think, I believe, yeah. I need my people to do this. Just I think the I count. This is the answer, yeah. Right. It's nauseating, and yet he's convinced he's in five. So the people who have made the biggest difference are people who read through, and then they went back to that chapter on three, and there's another chapter called the Tribal Leadership Epiphany, and they said, that's where I am. And if I can't move past that, I will never be a good leader. And they, and they realize there's no moving past that. There is keeping that in your view, so that you're capable of more. As you, as you, I mean, you mentioned you've revised the book, you're writing a new one now, it's the book you didn't have the guts to write earlier. What's something that, that you held true that you've changed your mind about as you research? Sure, so think of these, this is the new way to think of it. Think of these levels as like piano keys. And so there's one that you play that's kind of your dominant theme. But when you get people who have gravitas, they're actually playing all five at the same time. And it's really moving. So I'll give you an example. Ash and I interviewed a friend of mine who's a jazz professor at USC. So the Thornton School of Music at USC is one of the top music schools in the country. He is the only African-American in the school's 130-year history that has gotten tenure who was African-American. Like that was, and as he's talking, there was this gravitas that came out. And so we kind of asked, like, what was that about? That goes all the way back to the level one of slavery. So as a, as a historian, as someone who understands jazz, the Negro, the Negro spirituals and all of these different musical traditions kind of gelled, but they came out of an expression or they wanted to express the view that people's lives were intolerable. And that's baked into a lot of the musical traditions that we have today. It's just kind of been, it's a distant memory. And then level two, and he said something interesting, he's talking about jazz. He said, there are three things that make jazz great. It's improvisation, swing, and the blues. And the blues is the level two key. And in the blues, or a lot of country western music, it's things aren't going well for me, I didn't get the girl, I didn't get the gig, this kind of sucks, but it's not an existential it sucks, it's things aren't going well for me right now. And a lot of jazz has that baked into it. That's where, again, a lot of the gravitas is I've been down on my luck, but then improvisation, that's three. Let me show you in a, in a jazz group, let me show you what I can do if I'm on the piano. Let me show you, okay, I got the solo. Okay, everybody watch this. Mm -hmm. And now it's your turn, and I'll back you up. And now it's your turn, and I'll back you up. And so improvisation is where the person steps out and the group supports them. And he described a, a, a company where this happened, I won't mention the name, where the company had someone who was a musician, but not a very good one. And so the group came together and said, we gotta make this guy look good. And so he said, nobody in the company probably knew this guy really wasn't that good. I mean, he didn't suck, he just really wasn't great. And so the group made up for it, and that's swing. And hmm. so swing is where the group comes together, and when you got the solo, like, we've all got your back. 
even if you mess up, we're going to make it okay. And when you've got the solo, we're going to make you great. And so the swing is where it all comes. So that's four. And then my band, our band, is better than them. So that's four. Okay. And then when you look at, I mean, a, a lot of music, it's expressing things that aren't just about my group or this group. It's about the human experience. You know, it's look at how many songs are about love, not just about my love or their love, but about the, I mean, those are great songs. So just one, imagined by John Lennon, I mean, it's, it can sound hokey, but that's clearly level five. But it, again, as, as a chord, it's hitting all five at the same time. So when you get leaders who do that, and you two are in a position to do that, because if we don't solve climate change, we will be at level one. Like you have the ability to play that chord. And it's really hard to go door to door. It's really hard to sell, because people don't want it changed. They just, it would, it's easier to close the door, it's easier to say no. And then you get individuals saying, oh, look at how much I sold. But you need that, because the people who do that can then teach other people how to do what they do. But then when the same people say, but it's not about me selling, it's about us, it's about the cause, it's about the group. So when you go sell, we're all there with you. And then there's this top level thing. It's really not about us versus Tesla or whatever. It's really about if, if we don't solve this problem, then we're all in the soup. So you're in a position to create leaders who can play all five notes at the same time. And then you've got depth, and you've got harmony, and you've got something that's got resonance and gravitas. That's what we missed in the first book. That's amazing. Yeah, that's really, that's, I always, like, that's really how I understand things. You've got to give me an example, and the, the, like, the five chords, or the five notes at the, whole, at the same time is really, it's that, right? Because you don't play one level, then two, then three, then four, then five, right? You, right. the masters can do it all at once. Uh, maybe last question for you. As a, as a leader, how do you approach somebody that might be in level two and help them with a level three or four outcome? The reason I ask the question is because you talk about how leaders have to be proficient in all levels. Mm -hmm. You can't be a level five leader without knowing how to scrap in level three, right? You have to know how to. And so, for example, one of the things you said at the conference is someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to meet with you. This sucks. I can't do it. It sucks. If you were like, think about the climate, it's bigger <laughs> than that, I'd be like, okay, now you I suck, right? Like, yeah, it, it, we're not gonna connect. So how, how do you descend and show proficiency in those other levels and then exit at a higher level? Does that make sense? Sure, totally. Well, I'm gonna go back to my jazz example because what you're saying is you've got a person who's playing the blues. And if a, play, if a person's playing the blues and you play something that's happy and transcendent, I, I personally really hate new age music because it's so shallow. It's just kind of five without anything else. It's so shallow. And so if you've got somebody who's playing the blues and you turn on new age, it's not gonna work. So if somebody's playing the blues, play the blues with them. And what does that mean tangi tangibly, specifically? You sit down and you, you listen to them. You join into that level two conversation. You know, it is hard. I, yeah, you're right. Look, I've been there. And you might even talk about things that aren't working. So in case you haven't noticed, like the Band-Aid here and the Band-Aid here, I was at the gym minding my own business, getting back after the pandemic, and I ruptured a bicep tendon. I haven't been able to work out in like three weeks. And that sucks. That's been my edge. So if somebody's talking about what's not working, this is really hard, I'm going to hang it up, 
I would sit down and join him in that conversation. This is really hard. As, remember, this saying comes from a different book that I helped to co-author. It's whatever resists persists. And so if someone says, this is really hard, I gotta hang it up. And I say, you know, Ty, that's wrong. Let me tell you why that's wrong. I've got five reasons why that's wrong. In fact, can we put a PowerPoint about why you're wrong? <laughs> Step into my office. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. work. It doesn't work. So you've got to meet them where they are. And then over time, you can bring them up to three. But the way you bring them up to three is not, hey, I'm great, be like me. It's, you know, Ty, I've seen something in you. Not even sure you've seen it in yourself. Notice the I language. I've seen something in you. Not even sure you've seen it in yourself. But there's the key to something that if we could harness would make you great at this job. That's level three. Mm -hmm. And then notice how kind of mildly nauseating this is. So actually, Ty, I'm really good at spotting potential, telling you you've got potential. But if the person can at least hear you, are you willing to work together to see if we can get some of that talent unleashed? But if you jump right there and you haven't met them and played the blues with yeah. them, they can't even hear you. Yeah. They just think you're, you're, you're a problem. It's a great example. And, and it, it's how we do selling, right? When, when someone says, hey, you know, I don't want solar because I have a low electric bill. We're not like, well, how low is it? Well, that's not that low. Because right. they won't hear you. It's like, yeah, you do have a low bill. That's actually one of the lower bills that I've seen, mm -hmm. right? It, it warms them up and kind of opens them up. Mm -hmm. Then we can move together. I think that's really well said. It's, I think it's, it's honest. It's raw. It's it's probably the reason why leading from the front works so well. It's like, yeah, I understand. Now here we go. Like, let's go do this despite all these other things. Sure. And and in that example, like you compliment him, and you like, wow, that's great. Wow, you're showing it to me. That's really low. I, I got to tell you, there's you're you're way at it, way ahead of the curve already. And then over time, they'll become curious about what you do. Well, I mean, do you think I could lower it even more? Might be able to, but now they're leading the sales process. Sure. So that's what you want to do with your friend, your hypothetical friend that's at level two. Great. Well, I think we'll wrap it up on that note. This has been very insightful. It's, 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 it's actually an honor to talk to you. We've loved your research. We've loved your work. And so thank you for expounding and, and going through the exercise of applying this to, to our group and for the value that you added at our conference. So thank you for that. Thank you. And thank you guys for tuning in. This has been another episode of Electric People. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in joining our teams, check us out at viventsolar.com forward slash careers. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes and subscribe. Leave us a great review and leave us a five-star rating. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.